we continue in our series, Joy in the Journey, we come to chapter 2, and it's here that we see the exhortation to humility. This is a request for you and I to live and to love like Jesus. But you see, Paul doesn't just give us a request here. He gives us the reason for that life, and he reveals the results of a life of love. Church, we were not saved to be selfish. We were saved to a sacrificial life. If we're not careful, we will trade caring and compassion for complacency. And complacency will cause us to become consumer Christians instead of contributing Christians. My prayer as we go through this passage is that God would expose the hypocrisy of our hearts and in place of that hypocrisy, he would put a heart of humility. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Philippians 2, 1, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? that make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Paul starts with the request for you and I to be like-minded, for us to work together. Why? Because God desires harmony in the church. But you see, God doesn't just reveal his heart's desire for harmony. He gives us the key to harmony, and the key to harmony is a heart of humility. You will never have harmony in your marriage apart from humility. You will never have harmony in your small group or or in your church if we don't allow Christ to cultivate a heart of humility. Now, this like-mindedness is not you and I just coming together as a bunch of Christian clones. This is unity, not uniformity. God loves diversity. Just look around. God loves variety. You see, this is for a call for the church to have unity in the midst of diversity. Something that our culture is still trying to figure out. How do we have diversity and unity? And it can only come from a heart of humility that is surrendered to Jesus Christ. You see, here's the reality. We are free in the church to be unique, but we are not free to be divided. And what Paul is saying here is that as spiritual siblings... We got to do more than just get along. We got to come alongside each other and serve each other and love each other. And when the world sees that true, authentic harmony because of a heart of humility, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be knocking the doors down to get in because that's what they're really looking for today. You see, I think one of the struggles that we have with this thing called the Christian life is we've made it a job instead of a calling. What's the difference? When it comes to a job, you have to. When it comes to a calling, you get to. There's a huge difference in attitude there. 
When it comes to a job, you show up. When it comes to a calling, you make an impact. When it comes to a job, you're there for what you can get, the paycheck. But when it comes to a calling, you're there to make an investment. You see, when it comes to a job, we settle for what's good. But when it comes to a calling, we fight for what is great. And Paul is simply saying to you and I, don't settle for a mediocre life. You can have a monumental impact in the lives of those around you, in your marriage, in your ministries, if you would fight for what is great. If you would let Christ cultivate this heart of humility. And now he says, here's the reason for the request of you and I being like-minded and working together. And what's interesting, as he motivates us to like-mindedness, Paul uses mercy as the motivator, not manipulation. How many times do we try to guilt people into God? How many times do we try to motivate people with manipulation instead of mercy? And it always backfires because it leads to anger, resentment, bitterness, and hurt. And parents, I want to encourage you. Don't get caught up in performance-based parenting where you said to your kids, you send the message to them, if you get the right grades, if you score the right points, if you're in the right activities, then I will accept you and I will love you. You see, that's not parenting. That's bringing the circus to town and asking our kids to jump through all the hoops to get to love. That's not what God did. He sent Jesus to us. And as parents... We need to be careful that we don't fall prey to this performance-based parenting where our parenting is, how does it reflect on me? How does it make me look? You see, Paul here gives us three mercy motivators. And the first motivator of mercy is your relationship with Jesus. And he says here at the very front end, the reason for all of this, the first mercy motivator, you belong to God. And you are loved by God. Do you know what it means to belong to God and be loved by God? That means you are the beloved of God. When was the last time you just stopped in the midst of whatever you were doing and reminded yourself of the truth? I am the beloved of God. I'm a child of God. How many of us today are resting in that relationship? Jesus said this in John 15 I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you rest in me, if you're connected to me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you will accomplish nothing. How connected to Christ are you? Are you remaining in that love? Because when we run ahead of that relationship, the Bible says there's no fruit. Do you know what furious activity without fruit leads to? Frustration. And I think there's a lot of frustrated Christians today because there's no fruit. Why? Because we're trying to do this in our own strength. I see a lot of striving and even surviving Christians, but not a lot of thriving Christians. And I think it's simply because we're trying to be connected to our activity instead of being connected to the Almighty. Now, there are two things that every human heart desires, every person on the planet And that is we want to belong and we want to be loved. God has placed those needs and those wants in the human heart. Have you ever asked yourself a question, why did the hell's angels form a gang or a club? Because we all want family, right? Now that looks different than the family of God, okay? Drastically different. It's a fractured family. 
You see, they don't have God as their father in that family, but what they're trying to create is what's in the human heart. I want to belong. I want to be loved. And regardless of the rough exterior, regardless of the language that is used, regardless of what we would see on the outside, on the inside of that heart, it's no different than yours and mine. We all want to belong and we want to be loved. And when we trust in Christ as our Savior, we become part of the family of faith. We become part of God's family. And if you understand that, that means that you already belong. You are already loved. So many of us are living our life trying to fit in, trying to be wanted, trying to belong. And here's the reality. If you've given your life to Christ, you already belong. You're a child of God. And understanding that truth will stop us from striving to be somebody and free us up to serve somebody. Here's the reality. When it comes to pride... You can't walk in pride and grace at the same time. You see, grace is the great grounder because it reminds us that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, that every single one of us is a sinner in need of the Savior. That means if we didn't have Christ's finished work on the cross, every single one of us would be heading to hell. And I think sometimes we forget grace. And it is a gift of God. And here's the thing. It's awful hard to be prideful of a gift that you don't deserve and you didn't earn. But here's what we do. We start the race with grace. That's how we get saved, right? We don't get saved by works. It is the grace of God. Why? Otherwise, we're going to boast. We're going to get prideful, right? And so we start in humility. I am a sinner. Jesus, I need you to save me. And it's by grace that we are saved. And so we start the race by grace and and we're connected to Christ. And then he starts to allow there to be fruit in our lives because we're connected to the vine and we're the branches. And then what happens? We start looking at the fruit and we take our eyes off of God the Father and we start to become prideful over the results instead of the relationship that we have with God. So we start looking and going, hey, have you seen how big my church is lately? I'm going to write a book on how to grow a church. I'm in demand at all these conferences. I've grown this business. Look at what I'm doing here. Look at what I'm doing there. And here's what happens. We start to become puffed up with pride because we're no longer running the race by grace. It's by our good works, what we're doing, what we're accomplishing. How do you know if you've become prideful? Here's the thing about grace. Grace always gives glory to God. And if the activities you're in are not giving glory to God, then it's not grace-based. First, mercy motivator. Remember your relationship with Jesus. Second, rely on the Holy Spirit. It says here that we will have fellowship based on the Spirit of God, right? Do you know how easy it is to try to build fellowship based on everything but the Holy Spirit? Here's what we've done in the church today. We have primarily built fellowship on food. We're going to have a fellowship dinner, right? It's almost unthinkable in the church today for us to get together for fellowship and not have food. In fact, those two words in in most Christian churches mean the same word. Hey, we're getting together for fellowship. In other words, we're just going to eat, eat, right? Now, you can bring people together based on food, and I, and I hope you do that. Thanksgiving's coming, right, Thursday? 
Is there a place at your table for someone that doesn't have a place to go? Are you just inviting your friends and just your family? Are you reaching out to someone else? Food's a great opportunity for us to bring people in, but but you and I will never sustain fellowship based on food. Our fellowship has to be based on the Spirit of God, and we've forgotten that in the church. That's why we're so divided today because we're trying to base it on our likes, our dislikes, our hobbies, everything but the Holy Spirit. Now, when you got saved, when you admitted that you were a sinner, you cried out for Jesus Christ to save you, in that moment of salvation, God granted you all of the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to get. You got it all up front. You ever thought about that? Here's the question. You got all of the Holy Spirit. How much of you is the Holy Spirit going to get? See, we kind of like these one-way relationships where we get all of the Holy Spirit and then I can have this compartmentalized Christianity where he gets the parts of my life and the pieces of my life that I'm comfortable with. So we hold back. We don't really submit to the Spirit of God. Now, Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's what's interesting. It comes right at the beginning of a section of teaching on how to do marriage. And right after that, in 525, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit and respect your husbands, right? Isn't it amazing how we disconnect 521 like it doesn't have anything to do with that passage? You see, before we ever talk about our individual responsibilities in marriage, what it talks about is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how do you submit to other people? In a right way. Well, if you back up a couple of verses, it says don't be drunk with wine or alcohol because that will ruin your life. If you haven't figured that out yet, it's in the Bible. It will destroy you. It's poison. You see, right after that, it says instead of being filled with alcohol, be filled with the Spirit of God. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Because I already got all of the Holy Spirit, right? Here's the reality. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, there's no room for self. And I would suggest to us today that one of the reasons we have struggles in our marriages, one of the reasons we have struggles in our parenting, one of the reasons we have struggles in life groups and in our church and in churches across this nation and across the world is very simply this. We haven't submitted to the Spirit, so there's still a lot of self to go around. To the degree that you submit to the Spirit of God will be to the degree that you submit to others and you submit to serving them. And the reason that some of you are selfish in your marriage and you're not servants in your marriage, it's a submission issue. And it really has very little to do with your spouse. It has everything to do with your submission to the Spirit of God. You see, the third mercy motivator here is remember your humanity. Do you notice what he says? That we are to be tender and compassionate. What separates us from the animals? Our soul, right? Our humanity. And do you realize it is so easy for us to become cold and calculated instead of caring and compassionate? And I want to ask you, how tender are you? Some of us, we've been hurt in our hearts and we're like, nope, I'm guarding that heart. No one's getting in. I'm going to have a hard heart the rest of my life. I'm not very tender towards other people. And we're so focused on our hurts and our problems and our pain that we can't see anybody else. Are you aware that there is a migrant caravan on its way to the United States. In fact, the front end of it just reached the border here a couple days ago. 
Let me ask you this question. Do you see them as people or do you see them as a problem? We're going to put a picture up. Take a look at that picture. What do you see? That's a picture of the migrant caravan, just a part of it. Do you see people or do you see a problem? Now, some of you right now, you're saying, yeah, but we can't grant citizenship to everybody and we can't fix everybody's problem. And I didn't talk about citizenship. This isn't a political issue. We've made it a political issue. It's a human issue. It's humanity. It's the question, are we just going to look at people as a project or a problem or are we going to see them as truly people that are hurting? Because here's what we've made it all about. They're heading to America. That's a big problem. You know what I want to ask the question? Where are they heading spiritually? Is it possible in this group of of thousands of people that there are people that are heading to hell and they need to hear about Jesus Christ and the church is going to become hard-hearted because we're going to make it a political issue and not a people issue? Do you realize how easy it is for us to not be tender and compassionate? To just see people and say, well, you got problems, get a job. To not have any idea of the background of their life and their story because we don't have time to, to rub shoulders with them and take the time to find out what's really going on in their life and what their real heading is spiritually. Because I really don't care what country they're heading to. I, I care, are they heading to Christ? Many of you are aware that Angel and I lost three children. I say lost. We didn't lose them. We know where they're at. They're in heaven, right? That's a beautiful thing as a believer to know that. But there was a hole in our heart. And God, through his grace, introduced us to a ministry called Compassion International. And we were able to sponsor three children. Not just so that they could be fed physically, but spiritually. They could hear about the love of Jesus Christ. And then when Chris moved out, we adopted a little boy. And so we have these, these four wonderful kids that, that we have a privilege of, of being involved in their life. And we got a letter from Compassion this week, and they said, hey, your oldest girl that's been, you've been sponsoring her for a long time now, she's graduated out of the program. That's what every parent wants to hear, right? We want our kids to graduate, right? But here's the question they asked. Do you want to sponsor a different kid in her place, or do you just want to be done? That's not a hard question for me. Of course I want to sponsor someone else in her place. As long as God blesses, I want to be a blessing. And so we went on Compassion's website and we start looking. And I'm going to tell you, you start looking at all of those little faces. And here's what we want in America. We want them all to be clean and smiling and happy, right? I want to pick the happy kid. Church, it's not about happiness. It's about hope. And I'm looking at all these little faces, and, and very few of them are happy. And many of the eyes are hollow. There's, there's no hope there. And so there's this little girl, 10 years old, Marjorie. And at the top of her name, it, it states how many days she's been waiting to be sponsored. Over 600 days. You see, when she was eight years old, Compassion came to her village and took a picture of her and said, hey, we're going to put that on our website. And, and the hope is that, that someday someone will sponsor you. Will it be this week? Well, we don't know, honey. No, it's not this week. It's not next week. 
And week after week after week rolled by, over 100 weeks. And, and now we're into almost two years later and she's 10 years old. Does anybody want me? Does anybody care about me? Angel, I want her. Can you imagine what that's going to be like Monday, tomorrow? When compassion shows up in her village and says, hey, guess what? Someone wanted you. I know it took a while, but there are people who care about you. When I was down in Texas last week, I had the privilege of having supper with Jonathan and Dave Munson. And Dave started a, a, I call it a ministry, it's a business. It's called Saddleback Leather Company, and they make really kind of cool leather products, bags and different things. And their mission statement is this, to love people through exquisitely well-made leather designs. Did you hear that? To love people. And they've been able to make a monumental impact in, in Rwanda and to different places in Africa where they've built orphanages, where they've been able to start Bible schools, where kids are getting sponsored. And they're making a difference in people's lives. And while we were eating supper, we were talking about the reality that every day, 30,000 children die on this planet. Every day. And Dave says, no one notices. No one talks about it. And he said, what if, what if there were 100 huge jetliners and we put all 30,000 children into those planes and as they were flying, in one day they all crashed and burst into flame and there wasn't a single survivor. Would that make the cable news? You bet it would. There'd be an outcry. We would be saying, this can't be happening. This, this, is, this has to change. We've got to do something differently. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but we can't save everybody. No, but what if we reached one? You see, there's a lot of Marjorie's. Do you want me? Do you love me? Can you make an impact in my life? Are you willing to, to sacrifice? And, and honestly, church, a lot of times it's like we're sacrificing things that we really don't need. It's not really a sacrifice. It's like a latte. We're sacrificing snacks. We're sacrificing things that, that, that we really, truly don't need so that we can make a difference in other people's lives. You see, it's the story of the starfish where there was this huge storm that rolled up all these starfish onto the beach. And then the tide receded and left them stranded there. And the next day, a little boy showed up and he started picking them up one at a time and throwing them into the ocean. And a man sees him doing this, and he asks him what he's doing, and he says, well, when the sun comes out, they're going to dry out and it'll kill them. And they've got to get back to the ocean, and, and they can't get to the ocean on their own, so I'm throwing them in. And the guy looks up and down the beach at like thousands upon thousands of starfish, and he says, son, I don't think you're making a difference. And the little kid picks one up and throws it in the ocean. He said, I made a difference in that one's life, and now I'm going to make a difference in this one's life. And we've convinced ourselves today that the problem is so big that we can't do anything, so we just... We just put blinders on. You see, the motivation of mercy is your relationship with Jesus. You and I submitting to the Spirit of God. You and I remembering our humanity. And then he says this, here's the results. And the first result is joy. Parents, can I ask you a question? What happens in your hearts when your kids get along and they love each other and care for each other? 
Here's what happens in your heart. Yes! Right? Because that's a parent win. That's what you're parenting for. You want them to love people and care for people and cooperate together and stop fighting and squabbling over meaningless little things. He poked me. She poked me. He's sitting too close. Right? Do you know what happens when you and I get along as spiritual siblings and we love each other and we care for each other? God says yes. Do you know what happens in the heart of God's leaders, his pastors? It brings joy. If you want this calling of mine to be a joy, then play together and pray together. Love each other. You see, the second thing we find is that we're agreeable. And not just agreeable, it says we are wholeheartedly in agreement with each other. Last week after the election on the morning edition of NPR, they had a Christian named Ed Stetzer. And they asked Ed an interesting question after the election. Ed, do you think it's a good idea for evangelical Christians to hitch their wagon to a certain political figure? And here's how he answered the question. I don't think it's a good idea for Christians to hitch their wagon to anybody other than Jesus. Because we're here to show and to shine the light of Jesus. And in that moment, his inbox blew up with lots of hate mail, primarily from evangelical Christians. We are living in the age of outrage. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as the church is how do we engage a culture, an age of outrage without joining in? And I think the first thing is we have to remember our salvation. You see, when you got saved, you got a new life. You didn't just turn over a new leaf. And if you have a new life, then that's not just a new look. It's a new way of looking at life, new lenses, so to speak. And you and I get to look at life through Christ's eyes. And most of us today, we're not looking at life through a biblical lens. We're looking at life through a political lens. We're looking at life through a financial or economic lens. And it's tainting the way that we see people and situations. And I wonder in the church today, is our major problem that we are allowing ourselves to be discipled by our cable news network choices instead of Jesus Christ? That that we're allowing our spiritual formation to be based on our social media platform instead of Jesus Because I think it's time for the church to stop listening to the bad news and to start listening to the good news of the gospel. And when we listen to the good news of the gospel, we go. And we make a difference in people's lives. You see, today we're trying to find our commonality on our political preferences instead of our biblical convictions. And what's happening is, as a church, we're becoming defined by what we're against instead of who we're for. Do you realize the millennial generation is actually one of the first generations in a long time that wants to live for something greater than themselves? They're looking for a cause. Church, we have the greatest cause, the cross. It determines your eternal destination. Where are you heading, heaven or hell? It's the greatest cause on the planet. And we're not engaging that generation in the greatest cause. Why? Because we're focused at life through what? Political lenses, through economic lenses, instead of through Christ's eyes. So how do you and I come to a place of agreement? Well, I'm going to give you an illustration. 
Imagine for a moment, and this won't be too hard to do, and we're actually going to use marriage as an example. It's just one relationship. This works for lots of relationships. But imagine for a moment that up here at the top of this triangle is Christ in the place of preeminence, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, okay? Here's Christ right at the top where he belongs. And imagine for a moment that you have a husband over here and a wife over here. Do you ever have disagreements in your marriage? I know most of you are like, oh, that was just year one. We're way past that. We agree on everything. We have a honeymoon, 365, right? For the rest of you, the two of you, who are still maybe having the occasional disagreement, like my wife and I, um, and whatever other couple it is, I don't know yet, but we'll find out. They'll come to counseling. Christ is right here, and you guys are either side, right? And you notice there's a distance between you. Now, how do you close the gap? As you as a husband are growing closer to Christ, and your wife is growing closer to Christ, what happens to the distance and the difference between you? It disappears. But you see, we're trying to find our commonality in everything else today. And so maybe if we have the right hobbies, we could come closer together. We could have less disagreements. It has to be Him, Christ. But here's the fear. What if I start growing closer to Christ and she doesn't take that step? Or what if I start growing closer to Christ and He doesn't take that step? And so what's holding us back in our faith is simply this. It's called fear. I'm afraid my, my spouse won't respond the way I'm responding, so I'm going to hold back. Can I ask you, is it ever a bad idea to grow closer to Christ? Why don't we take that step of faith and stop making it about fear? Now, I will tell you that if you as, as one person in that marriage start growing close to Christ and your spouse doesn't, there's going to be distance, there's going to be tension. But here's the thing, if you don't grow close to Christ, there's still going to be distance and tension. It's never a bad thing for us to grow closer to Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to trade anger or excuse me, agreement for anger. Next thing he says here is we will be loving. We'll love one another. Compassion is the expression of love. Your love for other people reveals your love for God. And the limiting factor in your love for others is your love for God. You will only love other people to the degree that you love the Lord. And for some of us, we're like, well, I'm trying to figure out how to love my spouse more. Start learning how to love Jesus more. Start allowing Jesus to be more in control in your life. You see, John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know my, you are my disciples if you love one another. What's the defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ? Where they go to church? No. How many times they go to church? No. What they tithe? No. How much biblical knowledge they have? No. It's the love. It's the outpouring of their relationship with God. You see, what happens in your vertical relationship will spill over in your horizontal relationship. And if you and I think for a moment that we can be vertically right with God and we can be broken horizontally with other people, we are fooling ourselves. Do you have a lifestyle of love? 
And then he says this, that we are going to work together. And he doesn't say work together. He says work together with one mind and one purpose. One of two things will be true. You'll either work with people or you'll say whatever. And when that happens, you'll start to war with people. In your marriage, can I ask you the question, are you working with or warring with your spouse? With your kids, are you working with them or are you warring with them? At work, are you working with people? You're warring with people. You see, we have these relationships all over the place in our community, and we're either going to work with people or war with people, and they both take time and energy. The difference is the outcome. One's productive, one's destructive. So in your marriage, do you want to spend your time and energy on destruction or being productive? With your kids, do you want to spend your energy and your time being destructive or productive? And these are the questions that we need to start asking ourselves. Now, we just had an incredible weekend. Yesterday, we all came together to be able to go out and work together to be a blessing to our community. And I want to put up a picture. This is like my favorite picture that I took yesterday. From clear out in the foyer almost all the way to the cross is a table filled with food. And in the very far end is the reason that we're doing it, Christ. That's a picture of sacrifice. And I'd like you personally to join me. There were a lot, a lot of different people involved, but I personally want to have you join me in, in saying thank you to Deidre because she put a huge part of this together. You see, what's beautiful about this is it wasn't just one person. But she spearheaded a big part of that. And then all of you went out and you bought groceries and you brought them. And we had this huge pile back there. And we were trying to kind of camouflage it this week because I had a funeral. And there was a guy unchurched and he asked me, he goes, hey, what's that huge pile of bags over there? I mean, it was a mountain. And I'm like, "Um, that's a whole bunch of food and here's what we're doing. And he said, man, I've never heard of a church doing that. Isn't that sad? guy that's unchurched. I've never heard of a church loving people. You see, we started to work together and we had people coming down, picking up their box, going down that line, putting cans, putting all of the different food in there. And then they went out and they, they knocked on doors and they said, hey, we're just here and, 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 and we want to bless you with this and, and can we pray with you? And some people said no and some people said, yeah, we need prayer and here's what's going on in our lives. But people knew in this community that we loved them because we showed up. But the only way for us to do that is to work together. And do you realize it wasn't just us? Safeway partnered with us. They've done this for a couple of years. They came to us at one point and they said, hey, we do these turkey bucks and we have this food that we purchase for Thanksgiving meals for needy families, but, but you have the connections, That should be true in every single community that the people that have the connections with people that are hurting are the church. And one of the reasons that a lot of churches are failing today is because they're letting the world make the connections. And yeah, people get food, but they don't get prayed for. They don't get the message of Jesus Christ. They need to be connecting with the Word, not just the world. And so Safeway showed up and they had a whole trailer full of food, 80 meals worth, turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing and gravy. It was amazing to see. Had a guy show up and, and, and brought a whole bunch of potatoes. And we went out. There was a 
Rotary Club in Morrill that last year when they went to deliver their Thanksgiving boxes that they do, every place that they went, Mitchell Berean had already been and handed out a box. Now, it would be really easy to get mad. And that's the kind of thing that a lot of Christians get mad about. I'm really mad because some other Christian beat me to serving someone. That's the kind of stuff we squabble over. But they didn't do that. They called me and they said, here's what happened. You're meeting the need. Can we just join in what you're doing? Can we work together? Absolutely. That's what the church is about, right? And so they wrote a check for groceries. And we ended up having to buy a whole bunch of extra turkeys. And guess what? Here's a check God provided because we all worked together. And then they showed up and took those boxes. It's amazing what happens when we stop warring with one another and we start working with one another, isn't it? Peter Greer tells a true story about three different mission agencies that were all in, in the goal of translating the Bible into the same languages, okay? So it was three separate Christian organizations all doing the same thing. And in the same week, they all happened to go talk to the same businessman different days asking for funding. And this businessman was listening to this and listening to this. And the third one came and he's like, why don't they work together? And so he called Peter and he's like, what's going on with Christians? How come they don't work together? And so they, they called him and they said, hey, do you realize that those three of you organizations all trying to do the same thing? What if we came together and worked together on this? And I'll fund it if you work together. They estimated that Separately, they would translate those Bibles into those languages by 2150. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I do know this. Every single person in this room, including all the way to the nursery, will all be dead by then. Including everybody in that tribe that needs to hear the gospel. But you know what happened when they started to work together? They estimated they can complete it in 2033. That's our lifetime. That's 117 years sooner. Does it matter if we work together today? Absolutely. And then we see humility, that we will be humble people. Young pastor was getting ready to preach his very first sermon. And as he stepped up into the pulpit, he was a very, very gifted speaker, had tons of ability. He'd studied the word. He felt really, really confident, so much so that he stepped up into the pulpit with an air of pride. I got this. There was a young, or an old veteran pastor sitting in the pew and he looked and he saw that look of pride and he shook his head because he'd been there. And I think every pastor at some point in their ministry has been there where they step up and they say, God, I got this. And pastors, those of you that listen, let me tell you, you don't got nothing if you don't have God. You see, the power to your sermon starts when you're on your knees in humility in prayer. It's not what happens up here publicly. So this young man was preaching the word and he just was tripping over himself and he absolutely bombed his first sermon. Terrible. And he left the pulpit in absolute humility. And he found that old pastor and he said to him, hey, what went wrong? And the pastor said, If you had gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. And I think every one of us is susceptible to the poison of pride. Now, true humility is is not hating yourself. Okay, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. 
And then he says here that we will put people up instead of putting people down. He says we will think of others as better than ourselves. The word that he uses here for selfish ambition is the same word that he used in chapter 1 as he talked about those pastors that were constantly criticizing him while he was in prison. And what he's saying here is that selfish ambition in our lives will always try to put self up at the expense of putting someone else down. And some of you in your marriages, that's what you do. You put your spouse down to put yourself up. Sometimes you do it publicly in front of them. Sometimes you do it privately. They're not even there. And you just throw it out. Yeah, my wife, my husband. And you throw them under the bus. You put them down to put yourself up. We do it in church. We, we do it with our kids. We do it with our parents. But you see, here's the thing. We've got to come back to that acrostic of joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And when you put yourself in the right position there, you're not putting people down, you're putting people up. When you show up into a room, and when you show up to work, when you show up into different situations, do you look around and say, how can I make other people around me great? Or do you look and say, how can I get them all to make me look great? That's the difference between putting people up and putting people down. And then lastly, he says we will focus on others. And he says this, Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now, he's not saying that you and I shouldn't be interested in in the business of life here. Okay, we've got families to feed. We've got work to do. We have certain needs. He's just simply saying this. Don't make that your whole goal. Don't make it all about me. Make it about ministry and looking and seeing who you can serve. The me generation... And some of you think I'm talking about the millennials. I'm not. I'm actually talking about the baby boomer generation. That is the me generation. The me generation were born between 1946 and 1964. And there was a drastic shift culturally between the me generation and the previous generation that went through the Great Depression and served in World War II. You see, they understood service and sacrifice, and they stormed the beaches of Normandy to bring freedom to the entire world. They came home to build a new country and they started to have babies and we call them the baby boomers, the me generation. And what happened was instead of social responsibility being the important ideas of the day, it became self-realization and self-fulfillment. And when that happened, they started to make it about me. Now fast forward 40 or 50 years, the me generation meets generation me. That's the millennial generation. You know what's interesting? The me generation doesn't like generation me. Why? Because generation me makes it too much about me. And we're blaming all of the problems in our country on our millennials, right? They're the problem today. If they would just stop focusing on me. But can I ask you the question, who modeled the message of me? We have no idea how far back this goes. But I'm telling you, shortly after World War II, we became a me-centered nation. And I don't care if you're from the me generation or generation me or YXZ, me. Can we admit that we're making it too much about me today? That we have gotten so wrapped up in me that it's no longer about the message of Jesus Christ and ministering to other people? Now close with this last thought. A teacher decided to play balloon pop with her class. And that's where they take a balloon, tie it to your leg, 
and the goal is to stomp on everyone else's balloon while protecting your own, and the last person to have their balloon unpopped is the winner. And so she explained the rules, blew the whistle, absolute chaos and pandemonium, which teachers really don't like. They kind of like try to keep a little bit of order right. And, and screaming and carrying on and popping balloons and trying to attack other people while protecting your turf. Sound familiar? And eventually there was one winner. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, it was the school bully. The kid who was used to smashing everyone's stuff and taking things from people and hurting people and protecting his own thing. Way to go, bully. You are the winner. The second class she had was a special needs class. They didn't grasp all of what the rules were or the whole goal. They just understood one thing, and that was that the goal was everybody's balloons had to be popped. And once they did that, they could win. And so when she blew the whistle, instead of absolute pandemonium and chaos and screaming and carrying on and chasing each other, they all just started to work together. A little girl knelt down and held a balloon tied to another little boy's leg so a third kid could come and stomp on it without it moving and squishing. And then as soon as they got that one popped, they started working to pop hers. And when they got that one done, then they worked on someone else's. And eventually they popped the last balloon. And as the last balloon was popped, the entire class cheered because they had all won. You see, what was the difference between the classes? One was focused on me, the other on we. And here's the question, what kind of a church are we going to be? Which class are we going to be? The me class or the we class? Now, I'm telling you, I am incredibly, incredibly thankful for our church because as I'm preparing to preach this message this week, I was like, God, we're, we're living this out already. But we can't just live it this week. We've got to live it next week. And I'm thankful for all of these Operation Christmas Child boxes that are going to go out around the globe and bless a child. And kids are going to hear about Jesus in their own language and have their own Bible to read because you work together to consider someone else as more important than yourself. People in our community, they're going to have a Thanksgiving meal and know that God loves them because you work together and you said, I want to make it about somebody else. But church, we've got to consistently do this. This is a lifestyle of love, not a once-a-year thing. Next weekend, we're going to highlight all of our missionaries. And as we do that, we're going to ask you above and beyond your regular tithe to sacrificially give so that we can bless them at Christmas time. Not just because it's Christmas, it's the end of their year of giving and, and many of them are short and they got bills and, and things coming up and we want to bless them. We want to say thank you for sharing Jesus in different parts of the world. They're an extension of this church. January 1st, we're starting and launching our special needs ministry. Mike and Keisha are doing that. And we're going to have a lot of need there. And I just want to encourage you, can we be a church that keeps considering others more important than ourselves? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for how you bless us and encourage us. And I thank you that as a church, humbly, that we're able to read this passage and say, yeah, we're living that. Protect us from pride in that area. Help us to continue to be a church that makes an impact in this valley and throughout the world. That, God, we would raise up a generation of young men and women that have a passion for you. Help us to be faithful. In the midst of the political climate we find ourselves in, help us not to become crazy and join in. 
But Father, help us to just keep hitching our wagon to Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.